Back in January of 2017, a young child named Avery Jackson made national headlines. And here's a picture of Avery. At the age of seven, Avery, who was born a male, decided that he felt more like a female. And he went to his parents and he said, I want to start dressing and acting like a girl from now on. And they said, okay. And he appeared, she appeared on the cover of the National Geographic magazine back in January of 2017. Now, I don't want to get into any scientific debates about this. I think it's important to point out that there are many brilliant doctors and psychiatrists who say, this is good, this is a positive thing. But there are also many on the other side saying, no, this is not good, this is destructive. I'm not here to judge Avery or his parents. But I am here to say, this is simply evidence of great confusion in our culture on this issue. Facebook now has 51 different gender identities that you can select when making your profile. And so the question becomes, where do we go for clarity? This is not a trivial issue, folks. This goes to the heart of who we are as the human beings, whether or not there's a creator, and if he has a design for us as he created us. And so my goal today is to give you some clarity on that issue. But let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, that you've given us your revelation, your word And the scripture says that if your word goes forth, it will not return empty, but it will accomplish what you desire and achieve the purposes for which you sent it. So, Father, please, as I begin this message, please, would you get me out of the way so that your word and your truth can go forth and accomplish what you desire in the hearts and the lives of my friends here at Rock Hills. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're in the middle of our series called Summer Road Trip, and today our road trip is stopping off so that not just these four guys, but everyone here can receive a Father's Day present. My Father's Day gift to you fathers is to attempt to lay out a biblical blueprint for what it means to be a man and a father. And the only logical place that I can go for that is the Bible. If if experts can't even agree, the finest doctors and finest minds, where can we go? And, And I became a Christian at the age of 37. The only truth I have ever known comes from God's word. And so it seems most logical to me to go to the scripture, the revelation of the very one who designed us, to find out about our design. So my goal is to lay out a blueprint for how God has designed men and fathers. Now, if you're a woman here, if if you're a wife, you may think, well, I can just check out. I don't need to listen. But I want to encourage you to listen. Because the Bible lays out many roles for you as wives, and one of those roles is to help your husband be the man that God designed him to be. So please listen 
and, and begin to understand what God's design for your husband is. And then you can pray for him. You can encourage him and strengthen him in that journey to be the man that God intended for him. If you're a teenage boy, you know, you may have plans I look around, I see some of you guys going off to college. You have educational plans. You, you may have plans for a career. Do you have plans for growing as a man? I want you to listen today, even if you're not a father yet, even if you're not a husband, because I hope that you'll get an image, that you'll get a, a goal for what it really means to be a man as God intended. And if you're a young woman, perhaps you're dating, perhaps you're in a relationship, I have a warning for you. There's a lot of 20 and 30-year-old and older males in adult bodies that are not really men. They're, They're closer to little boys. And I want to encourage you, it's up to you, to set the bar for the kind of man that you want to have a relationship and to marry. Because if you set that bar really low, there's plenty of adult males who will gladly crawl over that bar into a relationship with you and then use you for their own purposes. But I also believe there's plenty of good young men who, if you set that bar high, will strive to reach that expectation that you have set for what you're looking for in a man. So there's something here for everyone. So with that, let's get started. And there's three points, dads, three truths that I want to take away, that you to take away today. First is, take your definition of manhood from the Bible. And I think we have those here. Take your definition of manhood from the Bible. The second is, lead your family spiritually. And the third is, lay down your life for your wives. Now let's start with the first. Take your definition of manhood from the Bible. You see, if we went around this country and asked lots of people what they believe a good definition of a man is, who they believed epitomized manhood, you'd get many, many different answers. Some might say, Tom Brady, superstar athlete, five Super Bowl rings, that's a real man. Yeah, I understand. I'm with you. Some might say, I'm just saying some people hypothetically might say that. Some might say, no, somebody like Bill Gates starts a corporation from the ground up, builds one of the biggest companies in the world, perhaps the richest man in the world worth $80 billion. That's a real man. Some might say someone like Brad Pitt. He's a, he's a Hollywood movie star, a, a hunk, married already to two of the most gorgeous women in the world and dating all kinds of gorgeous women. A lot of people say, no, that's a real man. But what I don't think you'd hear anyone say is that a real man is epitomized by Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible tells us that the God of the universe, the very God of the universe who designed each and every one of us, came down to this earth in the form of a man. And Hebrews tells us that God was pleased to have all his character indwell Jesus. He was fully man and fully God. And that is who we need to look to when we start to have an image of what it means to be a man on this earth. And so what did Jesus do? What did he look like? How did he live? 
Well, there's several characteristics we know about from the Bible. One is humility. Jesus himself said, come to me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. He was humble. Jesus was also a servant. It still blows my mind that the God of the universe came down here and washed the feet of his apostles. What an act of service to actually wash their feet. Jesus was also gracious and forgiving. As he hung on the cross in the most intense pain that I can ever imagine, with people insulting him and spitting on him and mocking him, he prayed for them. You know, the truth of the matter is, that's not an image that I've really thought much about, this this image that Jesus portrayed as a man. You know, I've grown up in this culture for now 65 years, and... (laughs) Thank you. And, And what I've internalized, there's other images of manhood. What I tend to think of is a tough guy, is somebody who gets in your face. Let's put a picture up of Nick Saban, one of the, considered one of the greatest coaches in the history of college football. And this is the kind of image I've grown up with. If you want to be a real man and somebody crosses you, you go ballistic, you swell up, you get in their face, and that's a real man. I was actually watching an Alabama football game earlier or last year, and he was doing that with like a 300-pound lineman, and the, and the announcer's going on, oh, that Nick Saban, he's so tough. He gets in his player's face. They're afraid of him. He's a real man. And that's what I've internalized. And the way that plays out sometimes in my relationship with my wife, Jan, is I'm not going to let myself get disrespected, right? So I'm out, we're out driving, and some crazy person comes in, almost hits us, and cuts in. Now, he's just disrespected me right in front of my wife. So what am I going to do? I'm going to get back. I'm, I'm going to get in his face. I'm going to do this. So I pull up behind him. I tailgate. Maybe I pull beside him and wave with, with one finger. You know, All the stuff you do, veins sticking out of my neck, because I'm a tough guy, right? Well, the only problem is that is not the image of a man. This is the image of a man in our culture. That's not the image of a man in God's eyes. And then one day I was reading through the scriptures of Proverbs 16, 32, and I think we have that, that verse here. And I see something that just blew my mind. It says, Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. And I'm like, wow. I can't, I can't even relate to that. And so I began to think, you know, if I went around the country again and asked people who the baddest dudes, who the toughest guys are on the planet, a lot of people might say like SEAL Team 6, right? The Navy SEALs. And that's the kind of guy I want to be. I want to really be a tough guy. But I began to realize that I want to care more about what my father thinks is tough. And so when I have self-control, when I control my temper, when I'm patient, God thinks that I'm better than someone who can take a whole city, that I'm better than a whole company of SEAL team guys. And so one day we're out on the road, and I get cut off again, and I'm about to do my usual thing and you know, support my manhood. And I turned to Jan, and I said, you know, I've been studying this verse, and, and I hope you don't think less of me because I'm... You know, I'm just going to let that go. And she says, think less of you. 
I always thought you were childish and immature when you did that other thing. <laughs> Here I thought she was thinking I was big and tough, and she thought I was acting like a 10-year-old, you know? And so, guys, you need to understand. You need to start staying in the Scripture and take your image of what it means to be a man from that Bible. Better a patient man than a warrior. Remember that. The second point I want you fathers to remember is that we lead our families spiritually. And we get that from Ephesians 5.25. It says this. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her to make her holy, washing her with water through the word. There's something powerful about the word of God. It is a tool that we husbands can use to strengthen and support and encourage our wives. And if you're going to be a leader, you have to lead by example. And so with every fiber of my being, I try to get up each morning and study the word of God. I want to be an example to my wife. And I've heard over and over from Jan that this really encourages her especially when I keep screwing up and screwing up. She's never done this, but I get this sense that every now and then, after another screw-up, she'll sort of come up and pat me on the head and say, God bless his little heart. He's trying. He's staying in the Word. She's never done that, but I think that's probably what she's thinking. And she has more grace for me because she sees me in God's Word virtually every day. But there's another dynamic that happens Jesus talks about this in the book of John. He says, when we're in the word, when we're filled with the spirit, the spirit flows out of us like streams of living water. And I want that. I want that streams of living water flowing out from me to my wife so that she feels the spirit of God, so that I'm washing her with water through the word of God. So men, stay in the Bible. Try to be in it each and every day. The second way you can do that as as far as leading your family spiritually is you be the agent. You be the energizing force to coming to church each and every week. Part of any kind of authentic faith is worshiping with the saints. Don't be that guy whose wife has to nag him and say, come on, babe, let's go to church, please. You be the guy that sets that expectation, that sets the habit in your family. Folks, the expectation is We're going to be at church on Sunday. That doesn't mean you're here every week. Nobody can make it every week. But that ought to be the habit you set in your family and the expectation that you set if you're leading spiritually. And the third way, uh, as far as leading your family spiritually, it's probably a little scary for some guys, is how about occasionally leading family devotions? Now, I know that's difficult, okay? Probably scares some of you guys, but I have a very practical tip for you. Here's what you do. Go to the nearest Christian bookstore, go up to the counter and say to the clerk, do you have like a family devotional? I promise you they'll have several of them. The family devotionals will have 365 days, one devotion for each day of the year. They'll give you a little blurb to read and then a couple of questions. Just do this a couple times a week and I promise you your family will respond to it. So that's leading your family spiritually. Now, the final point I want to make that's also in that verse 525 is this. Lay down your lives for your wives. See, that's the example Jesus set. It says it right there. Love your wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. 
Jesus came down and laid down his life for us. And that's really the gospel, isn't it? That is the gospel, folks. You see, Jesus, who was one with God, knew God's character. He knew that God is perfectly just. He couldn't just let our rebellion slide. But he also knew that God loved us. He had a loving heart. And so Jesus willingly came down to satisfy the justice of God, to take our punishment upon himself for our rebellion. And he died an excruciating death on the cross for us. You know, if you've never put your faith in that truth, why not today? Why not on Father's Day get reconnected with your true Father in heaven by inviting Jesus to lead you in accepting this gift he gave you by dying on the cross in your place? And if you want to do that, do it in the quietness of your own heart or see me after the service. I'll be glad to talk to you about that. But, you know, this whole idea in that verse about laying your life down for your wife, that that doesn't come naturally. We all have a survival instinct, right? So I know this pastor in Dallas named Randy Stinson. He's got, I think, 14 kids now, nine of his own and five that he's adopted. He's like three kids away from his own reality show on TLC Network, you know, one one of those families. But he had gone to see the movie Titanic, and then he started reading about the actual sinking of the Titanic. And what struck him was that literally hundreds of men stood back, let women and children get in the lifeboats, and hundreds of men went down with the ship. But there were reports that there were a bunch of men who pushed women and children out of the way to get in the lifeboat. And he realized that if he was going to raise men to lay down their lives, as the scripture says, he was going to have to train them. He was going to have to start teaching them. He was going to have to start preparing them to make that decision beforehand. And so he'd get his boys together and he'd say, okay, boys, here's the deal. If we're on a ship and the ship goes down, the men go down with the ship and the women walk away. You got that? Yes, sir. And he says, repeat it after me. Come on. They go, the men go down with the ship and the women walk away. And over time, they just shortened it, okay? The men go down, the women walk away. Now, in our culture, that's not politically correct. I mean, that's this old-fashioned, you know, 2,000 years ago. That's not very 21st century, is it? You know, I mean, now we have women in combat, and they're brave and courageous, and I want to affirm that. Women, are, they are courageous and brave, but that is besides the point. The question I'm asking here today is how are we designed? And what I want to suggest to you is that we all know that we are designed for the man to go down and the women to walk away. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Let's say tonight at my house, 2 o'clock in the morning, Jane and I are asleep, and all of a sudden we hear a noise out in the kitchen. Let me tell you what's not going to happen. What's not going to happen in my house is me elbowing Jan and say, hey, babe, why don't you go check that out? That's not happening. I'm sorry. I'm going to go out there. Now, my stomach's going to be churning. My heart's going to be pounding. I'm going to tell her to go in the closet and call 911, but I'm the one going out there. If anybody goes down to my house, I'm the one going down. And my guess is 
That's true in virtually every house here today. Doesn't that tell you something about God's natural design? Isn't there a rightness to that? There's two other great examples that happened within a few months of each other back in 2012. The first was in January of 2012. There was a cruise ship going past Italy. You may remember this. If you saw pictures, you probably would. It was the coast of Concordia, and it ran aground. And you could see the shore. It was only like half a mile away. But these are very treacherous ocean waters, and very few people can swim that. And so there were widespread reports of a lot of men shoving their way to the front and getting on the lifeboats. 32 people drowned in that disaster, most of them women and children. And the interesting thing to me was, in this politically correct world, around the world, those men were universally criticized as cowards for pushing the women out of the way and going to the front. Here, even in the, you know, in this 21st century, there's something inside people that says, no, that just doesn't seem right. The other example happened six months later in Aurora, Colorado, July 2012. You probably remember it. It was a midnight showing of the dark night. And some crazy man gets dressed up in tactical gear, comes into a movie theater with a weapon. Seventy people were wounded and 12 people died that night. And there was three different men who were there with their girlfriends, not even with their wives, with their girlfriends, had their girlfriends under them, laid over them on the floor. All three of those guys died. All three of the girls lived. Two of them were wounded as bullets went through their boyfriends. And all three of those women gave testimony to what their boyfriends did. Again, around the world, universally, those young men were acclaimed as heroes. And in the midst of unspeakable pain, all three sets of parents appeared on television and talked about how proud they were of their son for laying down his life for their girlfriends. You see, we may have a lot of theories about certain things, but when push comes to shove, in a crisis, we begin to go back and go back to our natural design. And our design is the man goes down and the woman walks away. Now, one of the things I want to point out about this is that the chances that any of us will ever be in that situation are very, very small. So how how do we live this out in a very practical, daily basis? You see, my dad was an alcoholic. He was an angry man. He, He made life miserable for my mother and myself and my two sisters. You never knew when he was going to blow up and hit us or whatever. But this is in spite of the fact that he was a war hero. He fought in World War II. He got the Purple Heart. He got the Distinguished Flying Cross. He proved his bravery. I have no doubt in my mind, absolutely no doubt in my mind, that if someone had broken into our house, my father would have taken a bullet for me. But he didn't know how to lay down his life each and every day for his family. So so how do you do that? You see, guys, God has given you 
one life. You have one life to lay down in pursuit of something. You have one life to spend pursuing something. What is it going to be? I spent 37 years pursuing money, pursuing pleasure, pursuing material things. Imagine me on my deathbed. Wow, I've got $10 million in the bank. I've got a beautiful house. It was empty. I was empty inside. This, I, I knew at the core of my being that this wasn't what I was built for. But I have found one thing worth laying down my life for. One thing worth spending this one life that God has given me. You know, God gave me this amazing woman named Jan. Guys, women are the most mysterious, the most complex, the most incredible, the most beautiful, the most impossible to figure out creatures you will ever meet. But what more satisfying thing can you do than to try to get to know your wife? I try to get to know Jan and her heart and and what she loves, and I try my best to lay down my life for her in ways that speak to her and bless her each and every day. And, And it's been the most incredible journey, frustrating sometimes, but the most incredible journey I've ever been on, trying to figure out how I can lay down my life for my wife in a way that speaks to her heart. And because that is such a passion of mine, I'm always trying to read inspiring things and listening to inspiring things and and see inspiring images. And one of the most inspiring images I've ever seen along those lines is from Braveheart. And and you probably remember the movie starring Mel Gibson. And and the, the setting was, back a thousand years ago, England was occupying Scotland. And it was a brutal, evil occupation because not only did the noblemen take food and steal things from the people with impunity, but there was actually a law that said any English nobleman had the right to sleep with the wife of any Scottish man. And they would do that. And if you tried to resist, the husband would be killed. And William Wallace had just gotten married, and he said, enough. This is not going to happen. And and for that reason and a bunch of other reasons, he raised a rebellion. He said, we're not going to live under this kind of tyranny anymore. Well, the big problem was Scotland was kind of an agricultural backward country. And they started, he gathered an army, and they met on a battlefield. And what they were facing, basically a bunch of farmers with sticks and clubs, they looked across the field, and they saw the British army with all the modern equipment and just seemed like 10 times more men than they had. And they were about to leave, and they they were arguing and saying, hey, uh, this is crazy fighting these guys. We're going to get massacred. And then William Wallace decides to give a little speech, and we have that this morning.
Almighty says this must be a fashionable fight. It's drawn the finest people. Where is thy salute? For presenting yourselves on this battlefield. I give you thanks. This is our army. To join it, you give homage. I give homage to Scotland. And if this is your army, why does it go? We didn't come here to fight for them. <laughs> Sons of Scotland, I am William Wallace. William Wallace is seven feet tall. Yes, I've heard. Kills men by the hundreds. And if he were here, he'd consume the English with fireballs from his eyes and bolts of lightning from his arse. <laughs> William Wallace, and I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as three men, and three men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. At least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to train all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take they went on despite overwhelming odds to defeat England and drive them out of their country. Remember Randy Stinson, the pastor in Dallas? One day he was sitting in his study, and his six-year-old son, who had just kind of learned to ride his bike, was out front, and they lived on a hill. And he'd always told his son, Sam, be really careful <laughs> coming down that hill. It's, it, you know, it can get steep. And he, he kind of looks out, and he sees Sam starting down the hill, and he's wobbling. He's like, uh-oh, this is not going to end well. But even worse his little daughter, four-year-old daughter, Amy, started coming out the driveway. And he could see it was a collision course that, a- that Sam was just going to obliterate his little four-year-old. And he jumps out of his chair. He's trying to get out the door. And just as he gets out the door, Sam, just before he hits Amy, just flops over. And he's skidding. He's bleeding. He's crying. And he's thinking, oh, my gosh, broken bones. He runs out. He says there, there must have been something on my face because he must have thought that I was angry at him because I told him to be careful on that hill and because he picked up Sam and he said dad I'm so sorry please don't be mad at me I, I, I know I wasn't careful but, but dad the man goes down and the woman walks away right 
And at this point, Randy says, <laughs> he picked up his son. He says, Sam, I'm not mad. I'm proud of you. Yes. The man goes down and the woman walks away. Folks, we have lots of choices in our life. Guys, we have lots of choices. What are we going to lay down our lives for? What are we going to spend this life for? And my commitment to you, much, much more importantly, my commitment to my wife, Jan, is that I'm going to be the kind of man that each and every day, in every way I know how, lives out my design. The man goes down woman walks away. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your guidance. Thank you, Father, that you have shown us in your word how we are designed. Father, I just long so much to be a good son. Your word says that Jesus is my big brother. I I long so much to be like my big brother and lay down my life for my wife and others. So, Father, by the power of your spirit working in me and the men of Rock Hills Church, may we all be men who live out this truth that the man goes down and the woman walks away. I pray these things in Jesus' name.